I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West! I mean, I'm practically giddy. I, I don't know about you guys. I am so excited because, uh, one, anytime you start a, uh, a weekend off with a video clip from a pre-war inspirational speech and it's out of the Lord of the Rings, I mean, that's worth getting giddy over. And then on top of that, uh, we get the opportunity this weekend to step back into the story of the unfolding people of God as we step back into the journey through the scriptures and we step back into the book of Acts. Uh, we have spent two months kind of taking a, uh, a sabbatical from that to travel through some very important things, but now we jump back into that and I am super excited because we have quite a story waiting for us. Now, as we step back into the story, I just had a quick question for you guys. Uh, how many of you guys have ever stood at the black gates like those guys did, staring into an enemy, a set of circumstances, a reality where you, very clearly the odds were not in your favor? You looked and you went, this is, this is looking bad. Uh, I've assessed the resources I have. I've looked at my emotional capacity. I've checked my mental ability. I've watched and looked at my experience and none of them measure up to the realities I'm staring into right now. Those things out there are bigger than me and I think I should run. I, I have stood in that place. I've stood in that place on multiple occasions throughout my life, but in the last two years, I've stood in that place often where I've just stared into the reality of the missional life that God is calling us into, the reality of the con context of that missional life in my story, and I'm looking at it going, I, I don't think we make it through this. I mean, I, I, I think we die on this battlefield. This may be the last great battle of our lives. I mean, I have felt that, and that, and that deep sense of this particular reality is bigger than me in every possible way, and, and I really, I don't know how we get through this. In those moments when we face trials that are bigger than us, whether they be because we stepped out in faith and missional living, or whether they be because we've lived by faith and circumstances that weren't supposed to happen to people that were good and living by faith happened to us, right? As we stare into those, oftentimes what we do, what I do, is that we run to the Word of God and we try to extract from there a few little band-aids, a little balm to make us feel better. We run to some verses that we can quickly extract because we're in a rush and we go here here this one will make you feel better how about this one ready ready Romans chapter 8 for God works all things for the good of those who love him I know that life's horrid for you right now but God is good to you what that, 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 I don't know thank you for that that's so beautiful I want to cry leave me alone um and so we got things like that. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. You know, do not be anxious about anything, but in all things by prayer and petition present your request to God, and the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's so beautiful. It's like a, a band aid on a gushing wound that has nine different veins that are spinning. You're like, the band aid's not holding. I love this one. This is one of my favorite verses, but I love when this one gets thrown around, right? Like a band aid in the middle of struggle. James chapter 1 verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know it is the testing of your faith that develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Thank you for that. I feel much better. See, the, the trouble is, 
Now, when we pull these verses out of their context and out of the circumstances in which they were intended to be experienced, they do hold some power. They do help us feel a little bit better. They do give us a little glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. But when we experience these verses, I've just thrown around like band-aids in their context, in their intended reality, with their intended circumstances, they expand beyond a band-aid and they become what they were supposed to be, which is the power of God for our continued salvation and sanctification. They help us actually sustain life in the middle of unbelievable odds against us when we experience them the way they were intended to. And as we travel through the story of the people of God, through the Old Testament, through the Gospels, into the book of Acts, and we now get the privilege of beginning to experience some of these particular writings in the context they belong, you will begin to see how unbelievably powerful they actually are and that they do actually hold the power to help us move forward. So where are we at in the story, right? We've jumped into the book of Acts, we're traveling through the book of Acts, And in the book of Acts, we have discovered some extraordinary things. Right in the beginning where the Gospels and the book of Acts kind of overlap is right at the ascension of Jesus. The Gospels end with the ascension. Uh, The book of Acts starts with the ascension. And so in that moment, both at the end of Matthew as well as the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus, as he is leaving planet Earth, declares to the human beings, to his disciples in particular at that point, listen, here's the deal. I am going to hand you my mission, the kingdom of God, and I'm going to empower you with my spirit, and you are going to go into all of the world. You're going to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, and it is going to be an epic journey. I am going to place the kingdom of God that's like a mustard plant that will consume all things in you, and you will become light to the world and salt to the world as I was light. You will carry the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it will expand into the darkness, into death, and into hell itself and we will redeem. That's what he says. The gates of hell will not stand up against the church. Man, that is a big deal. And then in Acts chapter two, the spirit of God comes. He he, he moves and fills the body of Christ. And suddenly we see an empowered body of Christ and the promises of God are unfolding and that body of Christ produces miraculous realities. The community is miraculous in every way. The people are together in all things. Acts chapter two, a community that we absolutely honor and love is born out of that community. Miracles start being born. People come to Jesus left and right. The sick are healed. All sorts of wonderful things happen and we start getting the idea at the beginning of Acts, this is gonna be an awesome ride. And then suddenly things start shifting. The Roman government and the Jewish leadership that are against the gospel rise up. They start pushing back and persecution begins. We watch Peter and John get persecuted and their boldness is unbelievable. They go to prison. The angel sets them free. They walk back out, start preaching in the same town. Where's Peter and John? Right in town. Don't worry about it. They're so absolutely bold and confident in the gospel and in what Jesus is doing. They fear nothing. They hide from nothing. And we see this attitude. And then Persecution rises to such a level that people start scattering out of Jerusalem and they start moving out into the outer parts. That happens right after a very significant event where Stephen gets stoned to death. So we move from this is a game to this is real. People are going to die in this war. And you know, when people start dying, everything changes, right? Like, whoa, well, that's big. I might die. Yep, you might die. Okay, I want to leave Jerusalem. But as they leave Jerusalem, they carry the gospel with them, and we see the gospel move into Samaria. The Samaritans come to Jesus, mind-blowing. The gospel moves out from there. We follow Peter into the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, mind-blowing. Right before that, the Ethiopian eunuch receives the gospel. He's traveling to Ethiopia. The gospel's in Samaria. It's in Judea. It's traveling into the Gentiles, and it's spreading to the ends of the earth, and we go, wow, that's amazing. Amazing. That's amazing. We come to chapter 11 in the book of Acts, and in chapter 11, as we enter into that story, Cornelius has just received the gospel. Peter sends word back to the church in Jerusalem, and then we see the people 
and big picture of Jerusalem and the people that have now been scattered moving in and out of the lives of others sharing the gospel. In Acts chapter 11, uh, why don't we turn there together and I'll show you where we travel from here. Grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 11 right where we pick up the story now. Uh, Page 598 of our Bibles, which are under the seats if you don't have one of your own. Page 598 or Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. And then we find out a couple of the guys started sharing with some of the Gentiles. In verse 29, it says, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the, uh, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Paul. So we end our story where we left off last time with the church on the move, the momentum of the gospel expanding, touching on the Gentile world, not yet integrating the Gentiles into the whole story, but touching on it, and the church starting to work together. Do you feel good about this? I feel good about this. I go, this is an awesome place to be. I feel everything moving forward. There's momentum. A bit of persecution's not gonna put a stop to that. And then chapter 12, verse one, this is what happens. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. That's not a good sentence. Do you like that sentence? That's not a good sentence. See, when Herod lays violent hands on something, that includes death. Because Herod was not a fun man. And he didn't mind killing people. And so this, this is supposed to cause us to kind of stop for a second and go, oh man, what's about to happen? Now I warn you ahead of time, if we are reading this in the context of the church at the time, what's about to happen should cause all of us to draw our breath in and hold it for a minute and go, no, no, not that. Listen, listen to what it says. He laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now we would read that in our context and breeze right on over that. So James dies. Okay, lots of people are dying. It's okay. But listen, folks, do you know who James is? So James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, he is one of the three guys that are on the inner circle of the 12 guys that are on the inner circle. If you talk about men that are walking with Jesus during his life here and now carrying the mission, you are talking about the 12 apostles and of those 12 apostles in leadership of those 12 apostles, leaders among equals are Peter, James, and John. Peter was the most vocal leader And then James and John secondary. It was James and John who kept fighting over who's going to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. It was James and John's mom that kept bugging Jesus about what are you going to do with my boys? They're special. I mean, all that stuff that we remember from the Gospels, this is James and John. And James is a key leader among the church. And if you were the church during this time, let's just be honest, right? If you were to look out at the scope, the landscape of persecution, who would you think God was going to protect? Who would you think God was going to make sure were untouchable? Some kind of superpower over them so that they wouldn't be hurt, right? I would go with Peter, definitely check. James, check. John, check. And then the other disciples, the apostles, uh, probably small check, 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 check. And then the rest of the church, like, good luck, right? I mean, there's a part of me that would say, They were special. They were different. They were unique. Let's look at Peter's life. Every time he gets in prison, what happens? King, chairs, doors, you you go, sir. (laughs) All the guards stand back. What happens when they want to kill Peter? Remember this? This happened on multiple occasions. John and Peter are going to get persecuted. We should kill them. If we kill them, the people will rise up. Things are going to go badly. Let's not touch them. So we have noticed this pattern with God where he sort of protects the apostles in a unique way from death. And we, I think by now we would start going, that's awesome. They're good. And then suddenly, out of the blue, in the middle of nowhere, it says Herod laid violent hands on some of the church and he killed James with the sword. He decapitated one of the disciples. I don't know if you guys uh, were around when uh, JFK was shot. I don't know if you remember that. 
But I think every person in this room, whether you were there or not, every person in this room feels that when I say it, don't they? Oh yeah, that was, that was a big moment in our history, wasn't it? I mean, there's a lot of presidents that have been, had attempted assassinations and several that have died. Lincoln, of course, way back when, but Lincoln is far enough back in our history that it is nothing but history to us. But JFK is still close enough to our history that we all kind of feel that sense. We know things changed in a big way after that. When you have a leader like Lincoln, like JFK, regardless of the political realities in which they live, when they are vocal leaders, inspirational leaders, they are moving our country forward they are dreaming big for us, they are on the front lines, and they are loved by the people, somehow those people should be untouchable. And we have special guards around them and we watch over them because we know that in our deepest sense, if somebody can get to our president, they can get to us, right? That's kind of how it works. He's the safest of all. Even though he's the largest target, he's the safest. And that's how it plays here. The largest target, target, of course, the 12 disciples. But who's God protecting? The 12 disciples. And then James dies. And the same shock wave that moves through an entire nation, an entire movement, when the key leaders in that movement are taken out of the picture is what is happening here. The church just got a smack in the gut lost their breath and went, James is dead. Have you heard? James is dead. Not James, James, James. The brother of John, Herod killed him. And you know what happened to Herod right after he killed James? Well, you'll see in a second, lightning comes down, consumes Herod, wipes him off the table. All the Jewish leadership are taken out. The Roman government melts literally like, and everything's fine, you shouldn't have killed James. No, that's not what happens at all. See, that's what we expect, isn't it? We want that, don't we? We're like, we want that to happen. But this is actually what happens. Take a look. And he killed the brother of James, I mean, James, the brother of John with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. So here's what happens. They finally kill one of the apostles and nothing happens. The people don't rise up. A war doesn't start. God doesn't come down from heaven. And Herod goes, see, all your fears about killing Peter and killing John, they're all for naught, man. I killed James and look at me, I'm fine. The Jews in leadership are totally psyched and they're like, way to go, Herod. And his popularity arises and all Herod cared about was popularity. And so Herod goes, okay, watch this. You think James is where I'm gonna stop? I'm gonna take Peter down right now. And he goes out and he arrests Peter so that he can execute him as well, except for one thing. It says, he arrested Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And the days of unleavened bread is that time that precedes the Passover. And in this culture, during the Passover season and the season of unleavened bread, it was unacceptable to produce an execution during that time. So what they would do is they would take the person they planned to execute, they would put them into prison for the duration of the unleavened bread season and the Passover. And then right after that, they would bring them out into a public setting and they would execute them. James is dead, nothing's happened, so now Herod plans on making Peter a spectacle. He arrests him, he puts him in prison, and he plans to bring him out after the Passover and execute him. So he puts him in prison, and this time, because the stories are true, right? Every time you put Peter in prison, chains fall off, doors open, Peter leaves. He goes, well, ain't gonna happen again, not on my watch. So he puts Peter into prison under very particular circumstances. Listen to this. It says, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by, uh, to God by the church. So here's the scenario. Peter's in prison, and, and Herod puts four squadrons of soldiers over Peter. They divided the day into four sections, the 24 hours, four watches of the day. And they would take three soldiers for each watch in a set of four, and they would guard Peter. So you would have Peter usually standing, sitting, or laying in prison, a guard on his left, a guard on his right, a guard at the door. And then they would exchange the watch each time and they would literally exchange in front of Peter and the guards' jobs were real simple. Don't shut your eyes. You watch this guy. He's an escape artist. Don't let him escape. There it is. Spear ready. You try to escape from those chains. You're going down. And so Herod is holding Peter. He intends to bring him out. And the very night before Peter is to be brought out for execution, 
this crazy thing happens. Listen to this. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord. There it is. We're all going, ah, it's going to get crazy. An angel of the Lord stood near him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. That's my favorite part of this entire story. An angel of the Lord actually still had to do this. Pete, Pete, wake up. We got to go, man. I mean, it's like bright in the cell. And Peter's like, what? Who are you? I'm an angel. Get up. We're going to go. I love that. So the angel tells Peter, get up, put your cloak on. We got to go. Peter is so half asleep. I mean, you know how you are. Three in the morning. Hey, wake up. Huh? Where are we going? Just put your coat on. Okay, I'm with you. And so it literally says Peter thought he was experiencing a vision. He didn't know this was really happening. I mean, he thinks he's dreaming. Oh, there's an angel, and I'm going out of the prison. My chains are off. Look, the two guards are still staring at something on the ground. They think it's me. How funny. And then walks out. The doors fly open before him, and he walks into the street and literally says, Peter thought he was having a vision. So at a certain point in the story, he figures out, I'm not having a vision. This is real. He's out in the street. So where does he go? He heads straight to the place where the people are praying for him to be released. But of course, at this point, you can see the attitude of the people because they now know that as they're praying for Peter to be released, how confident are they that God is going to release Peter? See, before when Peter was in prison, I don't even know that they would bother to pray this time because they're like, ah, every time Peter gets locked up, patang, you're out. But you see, James just died. So that changed the game, didn't it? Because now they're like, whoa, 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 this isn't guaranteed. We got we to go to God and ask him. So they're praying the night before Peter's going to get executed. Peter shows up at the gate, bangs on the gate. Guys, open up. So this girl comes down. You can read it right there. She comes down. She recognizes Peter's voice. She's so excited it's Peter. She doesn't open the gate for him. It says it there. He's like, let me in. It's Peter. She runs upstairs to tell the prayer team that Peter's at the gate. I'm like, girl, open the gate for crying out loud. Peter's out there banging. She doesn't open. She runs upstairs. She tells the prayer team, oh my gosh, this is so incredible. Peter's been rescued. He's at the gate banging, wanting to come in. They don't run downstairs. You know what the Bible says? They tell her she's crazy. They're like, no, no, no. Peter's not outside. He's still in prison. That's not Peter. They actually say to her, that's Peter's angel. That's Peter's angel, for real. He's banging on the gates. I mean, at this point in the story, I'm going, go to the gate. Get Peter in the house. The guards are coming. So Peter's banging. They're arguing over whether it's Peter or not. And the Bible says, finally, after Peter banging for a while, they go down. Listen, that's an incredible part of the story because that tells me that, frankly, the people weren't expecting Peter to show up at the gate. You understand? When they're begging God to rescue him, and when God does, they still don't really quite believe because James died. You see, they were pretty convinced that likelihood of Peter getting out of this one, slim to none, it's Herod this time. And apparently Herod can do whatever he wants. But look, in verse 16 it says, but Peter continued knocking and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. So now they're like, oh my gosh, it's Peter coming. They want to celebrate. The last time Peter showed up at a prayer meeting after escaping from prison, they all prayed for great boldness, and Peter went right out back into the city and started preaching the gospel, right? This time, look at what happens. And they opened and saw him, and they were amazed, ready to celebrate, but, uh, uh, but, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Peter goes, shh, everybody quiet. Everybody stay quiet. I know it's exciting. Just stay quiet. Listen. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. So this is what Peter does. Everybody's super excited, but Peter is not doing what Peter did last time. Peter's getting them all together and going, everybody quiet. Listen, here's what happened, okay? I was in prison, James has just died. I was gonna get executed, the angel came. It's a pretty amazing story. Now listen, I have got to go, okay? So I want you guys to stay here and stay quiet. They're gonna come looking for me, and when they do, just know I will not be around. And it actually says Peter departs and goes somewhere else. Do you feel the difference this time? Do you feel how everything shifted a little bit? It's, it's not the, woo, bring it on. It's suddenly a little more serious now. Not that they're afraid, not that they're hiding. You'll see, 
but it's, it's more serious now. James just got killed. We, we've, gotta be, we've gotta be vigilant in a different way because the story that God is unfolding here is bigger than we thought. The odds, not so much in our favor in the way that we thought. And so Peter, Peter takes off, but right before he leaves, he says these words. Listen to this. He says, he described how the angel uh, pulled him out of prison. He said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Tell these things to James and the brothers. So the question is, did Peter know that James had been killed? Because now he's saying, uh, go tell James and the brothers that I am out of prison, I'm going. Of course Peter knew James was dead. What was he thinking, James is gonna be resurrected? No. See, the problem here is that we think it's the same James, but it's not, there are two Jameses in the story. There's James, the son of John, the, son, the, uh, the, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, and he is dead, folks. He had his head chopped off. But there's a second James, James the Just, and James the Just is in Jerusalem, and James the Just is leading the church in Jerusalem at this point in the story. And James the Just, we find out through multiple historical uh, descriptions in um, Josephus' writing and other historians, as well as Paul in Galatians 1.19, he writes about James the Just, and he says, when I first started my journey as someone who had been rescued by Jesus, I went to the church and I saw James the Just, and he calls him this, James, the brother of our Lord Jesus. See, James is the brother or half-brother actually of Jesus. He is born of Mary and Joseph after Jesus is born and he's one of the boys that uh, when Jesus first went to Nazareth back to his family said, you're my brother, I ain't following you as some kind of Lord. Remember that whole story in the Gospels? Well, now he has come to know Jesus. He's walked through the resurrection and the, and the crucifixion, and he is passionate about the church. And James the Just is going to live now for a good 15, 20 more years until AD 62, where he will be stoned to death. But for now, he is in good shape, and he is leading the church in Jerusalem. And Peter has such deep respect for James the Just that he says to them, James needs to know what's going on. Get word to James as quickly as possible. James will know what to do. James will know what to do. And Peter heads off. When word gets to James, James responds to that as any great leader of a movement like the church does. James gets word out to all the people as quickly as possible and sends word to them saying, I know things are dark. We are standing at the black gates where that team stood when Aragorn gave them the big speech. The enemy is overwhelming. The odds are against us. Everything stands against us. But today our courage will not fail here on this battlefield. Live or die we fight and now James the just is going to write to the scattered tribes all over saying I know it's hard I know it's difficult I know you're overwhelmed I know you're scared missional life turns out to be hard but I want to I want to share with you some some points some realities some things to remember some things to do a, a way for the wise if you will that will help you live through the realities of the trials you're facing now And at this point, James writes the book of James. In the book of Acts, as we travel through the book of Acts, several of the letters written by James, Paul, and others will be written in in chronological order at certain points in the book of Acts, and we are traveling through the scriptures in chronology. So what we're gonna do now is for the next six weeks, we're gonna jump out of the book of Acts into the book of James, but not out of the book of Acts at all. Because if you're in the book of Acts, you would now be receiving the letter of James, and this must be part of our journey with the early church, to hear what they hear, see what they see, experience what they experience, so we know how that then applies to our lives. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to the incredible letter that goes out to the 12 tribes from James to stand in the midst of a time when the entire church is cumulatively standing before the black gates, and frankly, they're scared. James, the brother of John, is dead. Peter is going underground, and James the just is writing them. And James the just begins his letter this way. Page 654 of our Bibles. Page 654 of our Bibles. James the just. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. See, who does he write to? James is not writing to a church yet. The council wrestling with the Gentiles and the Jews and their mix has not happened yet. That's later on in Acts 14, 15, 16 and onward. What's happening here is James is writing to what is currently assumed to be a majority Jewish church, which it is uh, almost exclusively Jewish church. 
And James says to the 12 tribes, to the church scattered in the dispersion after Stephen under the persecution, greetings to you from James the just, your leader, the one in Jerusalem, in the hub of the bee's nest, the one that is dealing with this, I'm writing to you from the Spirit of God to encourage you. Everything is in that first sentence. And then he says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's our band-aid. But now it doesn't feel like a band-aid so much anymore and you're gonna watch what unfolds next. Now suddenly, as you stand in front of the black gates, James, the brother of Jesus, writes you, empowered by the Holy Spirit and says, I know it's hard, but stand fast. Because here's the deal. The trials that you are facing, though they seem to be overwhelming with the odds against you, God is going to do something with these trials that is gonna blow your mind. What James tells us here is that what the enemy intends for our destruction and the trials that he produces against us, God will redeem for our salvation and sanctification. That is a mind-blowing promise that no matter the outcome of this next trial, God will use this trial, redeem it for my sake and for the sake of others because that's what God does. How do I draw that from that? This is what God says. When you face trials of various kinds as you face life, whether they be the result of direct missional living or the result of planet Earth and the enemy throwing stuff back at you because you love Jesus and you're following him, here's the deal. Those trials will test your faith. And we always read this and go, oh, God produces trials in your life to test you. See how you handle it. Bam, let's throw Renault a curveball. Oh, epic fail, Renault. We got so much work to do on you, man. It's not even funny. That's not what this says at all. This is a different kind of testing word. It says, this is the testing of what? Of you? of how much you'll believe. No, it is the testing of your faith, the refining of your faith. When we test gold or we refine gold, what we do is we produce a great amount of heat and it naturally causes those things that dilute the gold to rise to the surface and then they get scooped off and the gold becomes pure in all of its form. It does no real damage to the gold. It can't hurt the gold. It can only extract that which dilutes the purity of the gold. And God says here, what I'm up to is that when the enemy produces a trial for your destruction, I will redeem that trial to, re to, to, to um, uh, refine your faith and produce in you the salvation and sanctification I promise to produce in you. So he says, when this is done, refining your faith, it will develop perseverance or steadfastness. They're the same word. And that steadfastness will produce something else. It will produce in you a completeness, a perfection, a lacking of nothing in the end. When we travel through the reality of salvation, we see a sequence of events. It requires the grace of God in salvation. Without the grace of God, there is no salvation. It requires faith. Without faith, there is no salvation. And it requires perseverance or steadfastness. Without perseverance or steadfastness, there is no salvation. So we need grace, faith, and perseverance to be saved. And here's what God does. The grace is mine. I give it to you freely. And then we said that the faith is ours, right? Yeah, except for Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Oh, the faith is mine. I will give to you. I will rescue you. I will save you. And then he goes, but you got to persevere. So if I don't, I'm dead. And then he goes, listen, listen, this is so insane. What the enemy will intend for your destruction, I will reproduce for your salvation. I will develop in you the steadfastness and perseverance you need to persevere, which will ultimately finish its work and make you mature and complete, not lacking anything. Do you know how free we are that even the intended destruction of the enemy is used for our salvation and sanctification? And we go, dude, you're so low losing this, this fight. See, James begins by saying, before we talk about how to handle trials, don't forget what trials are doing for you. They will not destroy you. In fact, the very opposite is true. Now James says, okay, that's good. Glad you're there. We're all inspired. But practically speaking, how do you travel through a trial? Because when you're in the middle of a trial, some big things start happening, right? You're scared. You're looking. Have you ever stood in the, in the wake of the black gates and the enemy has put its forces in front of you and you're like, I don't know what to do. I know you've never been there. I'm there all the time. 
God, how do I, I don't understand, how do I save my wife, my family, my everything that's dear to me? And God says, listen, when you lack wisdom, here's what you do. If any of you lacks wisdom, uh, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So God says, if you're in the trial, remember what's happening, and then when you're still remembering it, and you're still scared, and you still don't know what to do, come and ask me. God, what do I do on this one? How do I obey you? How do I live for the gospel? How do I keep my eyes fixed on you? What do I do in the middle of this reality? How many of you have ever asked that of God, and it's like crickets, and you're like, I, I, I asked, where's the generosity of wisdom pouring out from heaven from a voice from the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you, so often when we go to God and we ask for wisdom, here's actually what we're doing. Let's just be clear. We are not actually asking for God's wisdom. We are asking for God to give us wisdom that aligns with our desire so that our desire would be fulfilled that we can move out of this trial as quickly as possible. We want to know, God, how do I get out? There it is. That's actually what we're asking. I don't need wisdom for the in. I need to get out. Can you tell me how? And then what often happens, especially on mission for the gospel, whether it's in relational realities or whether it's in circumstantial realities or whether it's with resources, too much or too little, God is usually calling us into a story, into mission, into powerful realities, and we want out. And so we go, God, show me wisdom. And he pours wisdom onto us from here, right here. He's already told us. I love when people like, right now I've prayed about this and I sense God telling me I can do that and I go, that's so strange because in here he told the opposite. So I, I don't know what you're praying about but it's right here. So often when we are seeking wisdom, we want to hear from God and then when we do hear from God and hear or from a, a counsel person who knows the word of God and says, here's what God would want you to do right now, we go, oh, no, not that. Now that, that sounds neat but that's not for me. And so God says this, James writes and he says, listen, ask generously and it will be given to you, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person is not supposed, should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. I go, wow, that's pretty harsh. No, no, it's not harsh. It's just a reality, folks. God's not trying to punish you here. He's going, look, if I'm going to pour wisdom into you through the word of God and you're going to continually go with your own ideas or the ideas of your cultural philosophies and go, God's ideas are ancient, mine are better, then just don't be surprised when you are tossed about like a, like a crazy boat in a storm and you are unstable constantly because what brings stability is my wisdom. I sit with my kids all the time. This happens constantly in my house. Uh, they're across the counter and they ask me a question or I see something happen in life and I speak wisdom into them. I go, here's what I think you should do. And then they, they follow the sentence with this, yes, but. And then they fill in for me why my wisdom just didn't make any sense in their perfect, wondrous wisdom and context. And then I rebuttal with, I hear you, but what you don't understand is this. And then I fill in the blank for them, thinking this will awaken them from their foolishness. But they just rebuttal with a yes, but, and then they go down that road. Then I go, no, 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 but yes, but. And, then they, and after about four or five of those, I usually do this. I usually say to them, you know what Solomon says about wisdom? He says, wisdom will shout at you from the streets. Come to me, I'll keep you safe. And when you stick your fingers in your ears and go, ah, 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 then wisdom will laugh at you when you're dying. So good luck, because I'm done giving you wisdom. I'm done, I'm finished. If you don't want to take it, then leave it. Good luck on the instability that's about to come your way. And that's all God's saying here. If I'm gonna pour wisdom out for you and then you're gonna go, nah, 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 that sounds too hard, I want out. Good luck. Just know, don't think you're gonna receive anything from me that is gonna help you in the middle of this trial. You're not gonna lose your salvation, God's not gonna stop loving you, but in the middle of that context of that trial, you're gonna be pretty bumpy. And at some point, you'll either wake up or it's gonna be a bumpy ride. So he says, listen, make sure when I give you wisdom, you actually run with mine, not yours. Then in verse nine it says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I mean, don't you find that an odd verse to put right here? 
It's like James was writing about trials and he suddenly went, I should make a point about being rich real quick. If you're rich, you're in trouble. Watch out. Anyways, back to trials. That's what it feels like. The first time I read it, I'm like, what on earth? And then it dawned on me. James is laying out a sequence for us, a a, a way of wisdom for handling the realities of our experience in a trial, right? That's what's happening here. And what do you always do in a trial? I do. There comes a point after I've freaked out completely, checked the odds and gone, I'm gonna die, then I quickly assess what I have. Okay, uh, how much intellectual energy do I have? How much emotional power do I have? Uh, do I have God with me or not? Where is he? Okay, maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. Okay, what, and, and we assess. Do I have financial resources? Do I have, what can I do? And our temptation is that though we are asking God to help us, what we actually end up doing is assessing how much we have, and we tend to make this statement. If only I had more fill in the blank, then I would be able to fill in the blank. And what what James says here is, whoa, everybody hold. In the middle of an incredible trial, when you're facing the black gates, don't believe that what you have or don't have is going to make any real difference in whether the outcome of this trial is going to change. Because it's not up to you, folks. Whatever God thinks you will need, he will give to you. And whatever he thinks you won't need, he won't. And that's okay. That's enough. You have God and that's enough. Because what tends to happen is we do this. If only I had what they had, then I would be able to handle this. I hear this all the time. I wish I was more like such and such. Or I wish we had more than that. Or we, then everything would be okay. And James goes, when you're facing the black gates and it's overwhelming odds, those who have more than they think they need, watch out. Because what you're going to do is you're going to live in what you have and go, I got this covered, man. I mean, I see this all the time. People that have built lives for themselves that are secure and powerful and wealthy and have everything. Their tendency sometimes tends to be, if they don't know Jesus real well, to have God as a side note and go, I'll call on him if the trials outweigh what I have, but what are the chances that's ever gonna happen? Something happens to my family, there's no amount of that I won't and I can't. And God goes, man, let the, let the man or woman who lives in that place live in their humility, right? Because our tendency in trials is to count on ourselves. And God's saying, if you don't have anything to count on, you should actually be very happy about that because it will demand that you run to me. But if you have too much to count on, you will pursue the things you count on instead of pursuing me. Be very careful. And for a society like ours that live in the Western culture where we have grown up learning, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you build a kingdom for yourself, you get secure, and then you go, take the world. Man, this speaks to us. When you're overwhelmed by the odds, don't count on yourself. Actually set all yourself aside and go, God, Even if I have enough to pull off this trial, I think I'm still gonna need you a lot because I doubt I have enough. And then he says this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, birth to sin, uh, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is a typical scenario in a trial. We do one of two things, us human beings. We either assume that the trial is a temptation, and so we go, oh my goodness, I fell because it was so hard, and God, God knows me, and, and he gave them, and, and God goes, well, oh, let's not mix up trials and temptations. Trials happen as a result of the enemy of God trying to stop us or the reality of sin in this world producing horrid things. Welcome to planet Earth. Temptation happens when you're in the middle of those things and your desires outweigh God's desires. There it is. There's the secret. When we want what we want, inevitably and always, when our desires are there, they birth sin. Why? Because when we want and we don't consider what God wants, we will act as though this life is about us and not about him. And if this life is about you and me, then frankly, the way you should handle every circumstance is completely different than if this life is about God, not you. Every time something happens to you that doesn't feel good, doesn't feel right, doesn't happen the way you want it, you should abandon ship and find something else. Relationships, circumstances, housing, push the red reset button. Chicka-ting, yay, look, I'm free. 
But if, if it's God's story, not yours, God's wisdom, not yours, then it's not about your desires. What you want isn't what matters for the story. What God wants and wants for you is what matters for the story. So he says, look, if, if you're in the middle of a trial, keep your head straight. Whose story is this? God's. Who are you living for? God. What's God doing? Producing missional living in me. Why? Because he's restored my purpose. And why is he doing that? Because he's rescued my soul. I'm good. That's what he's saying here. Do not get caught up in your own desires in the middle of a trial. Because you will either bail and run or you will fight differently. And you should fight for the gospel for the sake of Christ. And that changes the way we handle life. So don't be deceived into thinking God is trying to tempt you, test you. This is also a way that he's saying, remember when I said I'm testing your faith? This isn't like a trial where I'm using as a temptation to see if you'll stand. That's not the kind of testing here. In the middle of trials, you will be tempted to run your own way, to do your own thing, be vigilant. Ephesians chapter five, verse 15 says, man, keep watch every day for the day of evil is near. Do not get drunk on wine, but be full of the spirit of God walking in him. Galatians chapter six says, man, stand firm in this day of evil. Put on the full armor of God and walk steadfastly, praying in all occasions in all ways. See, all over scripture, it's like when we're in the middle of the war, do not forget who you are and who you live for. If you live for yourself and you spark your own desires, they will inevitably birth sin, which will birth death. If for no other reason that you will walk out of a trial, God is intending for you to be a redeemer in on his behalf and that redemption will die. You don't think that there are many days where Brooke and I look at our current story, eight kids, I mean, really? Come on, let's not joke around and go, what have we done? Why? And then God goes, <clears throat> I know what you want. You want the quiet life, don't you? You want a little island in the South Pacific, just you and your wife, every day. I get it. But that comes after death. You can get a getaway there once in a while. But your life on this planet is about redeeming those who need redeeming. And that includes all eight of your children. So get back in there. Do what needs to be done. The odds are against you but I'm with you and I, I am bigger than any odds. And then he says this, do not be deceived my beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. See what he's saying here is this, if you are tempted to buy into what you think is gonna be a good thing if you just do it your way. Every good thing comes from God. Do you think God is gonna call you into a battle at the black gates and say the odds are against you, but live for me if he does not intend to redeem the story into a greatness beyond your wildest imagination? Guys, let's not forget who is asking us to live this way. The God of the universe who has made promises to us bigger than we can imagine. When we stand in the middle of a trial that seems like it's overwhelming to us, we have stepped into missional living that seems like it's crushing us, we need to remember this, that God is not distant. He's right where he needs to be, doing exactly what he needs to do, and you're right where you need to be, and he will rescue you if you need rescuing, or if you die on the battlefield, he will redeem that story into greatness. Sometimes death on the battlefield is the greater story. And only God will know that, not you. So the outcome doesn't even matter. I fight because he asked me to fight. That's it. And every good gift, every perfect story is from God. So when God asks you to do something or stay the course on something, even though it seems like it will produce the worst story, we go, don't forget who good, good gifts come from. Not our wisdom, not the enemy's temptation, but from God and the author of our story. And then he says this, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits for his creatures. That's a beautiful end to this passage. He says, if, nothing, if all else fails you and you've traveled this way and you're like, I'm still scared. And he says this, remember the story isn't just about you. It's much bigger than you. He has determined your story for the sake of the greater story of generations to come. 
I wasn't there when Jesus rose from the dead, so I stand on the shoulders of the 12 who saw it happen, so when they live their lives insanely and all get crucified upside down and torn apart and give their lives up for the sake of the gospel, I go, they would never have done that if they didn't see Jesus rise from the dead. So I believe my faith stands on the shoulders of those who were there when Jesus rose from the dead. And if they gave up in the middle of their story, then I wouldn't be believing today. Nor would you. None of us would be here. We are here rescued because they stayed the course. Because James wrote to them and said, do not give up on this battlefield, but keep moving forward because there are people ahead of us we have never met and will never know that are counting on us to stand firm because we know the truth. And today it has not changed at all. Hebrews chapter 12 says, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, then run the race set before you with perseverance and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Who do you think are going to be the witnesses for our children's children's children? Us, you and me. We stand, we live, we chase after Jesus in a way that is uncommon. Why? Because Jesus, by his word of truth, determined our story to be a story for them and for his kingdom. And so this is bigger than you and me, man. This is about the gospel, and this is why we live. When Jesus said we were gonna go conquer the gates of hell, what did we think was gonna happen? That hell was gonna lay down and die in front of us? Oh no, it's the church, quick, lay down and die. Did we think hell was gonna go, oh my gosh, look, it's the children of light coming, let's run for our lives. No, no, they have nothing to lose. The enemy of God has nothing to lose, remember that. Everything to gain, nothing to lose, because he's already lost everything, so now he has only to gain. And he is gonna fight you and me with everything he's got. He is gonna tempt your flesh with everything he's got. He's gonna produce trials and tribulations and war zones for you beyond your wildest imagination. Against all odds, you will walk into those things, and Jesus will tell you, it will seem like you are about to die, but don't forget who's authoring this story. What the enemy intends for your destruction, I will redeem for your salvation and sanctification. Don't ever forget that. So now, stand firm, fight hard. There will come a day, as Aragon so beautifully said, where the hearts of men will fail and the courage of men will cause us to lay down on the battlefield. But it will not be this day. This day we fight, and that's what James the Just just told the church. Can you imagine what the next four chapters are gonna hold? It's gonna be a wild ride, buckle up, let's pray. God, thank you so much for all that you are showing us through this incredible letter that James, the leader of the church during this time in Jerusalem, is writing to the 12 tribes scattered by the dispersion. And God, in consequences, he's writing to a church that is facing the black gates and an enemy that is overwhelming and odds that are against them. So too, we are grateful that James's word applies to us too in the lives we live on mission for you when the odds are against us and the circumstances around us are overwhelming. Give us vision in the way of the wise, as James lays it out to step into these trials and into these tribulations, remembering that it is your redemptive power that will redeem these things into our salvation and sanctification and what the enemy intends for our destruction will never produce destruction because though the odds are against us, you are for us and if you are for us, who can actually be against us? Keep us fixed on the wisdom in the midst of James as to how we should handle the trials And may we trust you more than we trust ourselves and follow you more than we follow ourselves. We love you, Jesus. Use us in mighty ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.